for the third time in this little New Testament letter that we have been looking at, we come to the subject of love. This is such an important concept to the Apostle John as he brings this topic up again to take an even deeper look. The first time in the letter, in chapter 2, he showed love to be proof of fellowship with God. And in the second instance, in chapter 3, he spoke of its evidence of being sons of God. And now in chapter 4, he drills down deep to the very foundation of love. And we're going to see why love is such an important part of the life of a true believer, of a genuine child of God. This is a life that's connected to God's life. The reason why John says that love indicates fellowship with God and sonship with God is because of this. God is love. It is a part of his nature. And uh, the Apostle Peter tells us in his first letter that when we have put our trust in Christ and come to know him, become his child, that we share in his divine nature. So we're going to need to see this connection of God being love and then what that means in our lives. And four times in the passage that we're going to study this morning, John exhorts us to love one another. Verses 7, 11, 12, and 21. In fact, you really can't miss how central love is in this passage because of this. Love is mentioned, the word love, 27 times in 15 verses. I think John's trying to make a point, and we need to get that point. Then he supports this exhortation to love by three foundational facts. So let's go to the text. 1 John chapter 4, and if you want to grab the Seatback Bible, it's page 1304. 1 John chapter 4, and here's the first thing that we're going to learn. What God is, God is love. Look at verses 7 and 8. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now this is the third expression that we see in all of John's writings that point to truth about the nature of God. And so in his gospel account in chapter 5, he talks about God is spirit. We saw earlier in this letter in chapter 1 that God is light. And now he adds this point for us, God is love. And it's important that all three of these be together so that we get a complete picture of the nature of God as revealed to us in Scripture. So God is spirit as it pertains to his essence. He's not bound by time, he created time. He lives outside of time even though he works inside of time. So he's not limited by time and space as we are, creatures of his creation. God is light reveals his nature. Whenever we see God pictured, we see this radiant light, or think of Jesus and the, the Mount of Transfiguration, but it, it speaks of, of radiance. Uh, this light is glorious, it's pure. Uh, it, it's an expression of all of his attributes together, this, this perfection of him that comes out as brilliant light. The Apostle Paul, 
in his first letter to Timothy, speaks of God when he says of him, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And then we get an understanding of the moral nature of God in that God is love. Now, this doesn't mean love is God. People want to just flip that. You can't flip it around. Uh, in fact, the structure of the Greek language of the New Testament doesn't permit you to do that. Because, you see, it, it, it means that love does not define God, but God defines love. God is love. And all that God does expresses all that God is. Now, you have to think about love in our culture today, in our society. It certainly doesn't match up necessarily with God's love revealed in Scripture. Uh, I read this week about there was a college fellow who walked into a photography studio with a framed picture of his girlfriend. He wanted the picture duplicated. And in doing this, the studio uh, owner noticed the inscription in the back of the photograph. It said, my dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more each day. I will love you forever and ever. I am yours for all eternity. It was signed, Diane. And then there was a P.S. If we break up, I want this picture back. <laughs> God is faithful. There is no P.S. with his love. It is who God is, and because that's so, in everything that God does, he's faithful to his character, and John's saying that a part of his nature is that he is love. So Christian love, the kind that we're exhorted to exhibit toward others, is patterned on God's love, which is agape love. It's a selfless love. It is a love that loves because of who is loving, not because of the lovableness of the one being loved. And so you see, love, therefore, is a valid test of true Christian faith. Since God is love, and we've claimed to have a relationship with God, then we must of necessity love as he loved. A child of God has been born from above, or born of God, and therefore that person shares in God's divine nature. Love is to be a part of of who we are and what we do as God's children. But John says, not only have we been born of God, he says we know God. So what does it mean to know God? Well, to know God means to have a deep relationship with him. It means to share his life. It means to enjoy his love. Now, John writes in verse 8 that anyone who does not love does not know God. Now, there are a lot of people who just lack a personal experience with God. And we often see that reflected in their life. But the kind of love that God calls us to love others with can only come from one place, from him, the one who lives in us. And what God is then determines what we ought to be. Now there's a second thing that John tells us in this passage, and that is what God did. He sent his son. Would you go to the text, 1 John chapter 4? Starting at verse 9, John writes, In this the love of God has been made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, because God is love, he must communicate, not only in words, but also in deeds. Love is never static. Love is never inactive. It is always doing something. We see it, for example, how God's love was revealed in the way that he dealt with his people Israel. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says this to his people, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And when we step back and we look at the work of God through all the span of history, we see that the greatest expression of God's love is in the death of his son. Almost an oxymoron, isn't it? The greatest expression of God's love is in the death of his son. The Apostle Paul put it this way in the letter to the Romans, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So John is writing along here in this chapter, and then he comes down to verse 9, and he says that God's love was made manifest or was manifested to us. Now, the word manifested simply means to be made visible or public. It means to reveal, to lay bare, to uncover. And so we ask the question, well, why then was Jesus manifested to us? John answers it. It is that we might live through him. Now, earlier in the letter, we see how that's even possible. Turn back to chapter 3. The first thing that we see is that he was manifested to take away our sins. Chapter 3, verse 5. John says, you know that he appeared, and it's the same Greek word in the Greek text that we sing over in chapter 4 of manifest. He appeared, or he was manifested, uh, to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And then he gives us another reason in verse 8 of chapter 3, that is to destroy the works of the devil. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared, was manifested, was to destroy the works of the devil. Now we need to remember that the sending of Jesus in the world, into the world and his death on the cross was not prompted by our love for God. It's prompted by God's love for us. He is the moving force behind that. He is the fact of why Jesus came. And so when he writes in chapter 4, he gives two purposes for Jesus' death on the cross. In verse 9, that we might live through him. And verse 10, that he might be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's a big word. That's a $25 word, propitiation. Let's not get scared about that word. It simply means satisfaction. It's a great word. It is filled with meaning. I mean, basically, it means this, the idea of satisfying. Well, what is God satisfying through Jesus' death? He's satisfying his justice. 
You see, propitiation is the answer to God's wrath. We don't like to think of God being a God of wrath, but he is. This isn't just the Old Testament God. This is the God of the New Testament. So when you see anything written about God's wrath, think of it this way. It is his holy revulsion against anything that is contrary to his perfection. He must respond that way. It is his holy response to sin. His nature requires that he act in that way. Because he is holy. He is just. He must respond to sin that way. That's why you and I have a problem. That's why every person who's ever been born into this world or ever will be born has a big problem. Now, we have to be careful here that we don't think of propitiation um, as, as if Jesus has to win over this angry, wrathful father and win him over to love and forgiveness. It's not Jesus twisting the arm of God to forgive. That's not what it means. God loves us. But his love never acts outside of the confines of his other attributes, chiefly his holiness. And while God is quick and either eager to forgive, his holiness must be satisfied. And that's what the death of Jesus does. That's the doctrine of propitiation. That in his death, because he was 100% God and 100% man, God pours out his wrath on his son on the cross and thereby satisfies his justice. That's why God can be both, as Paul writes in Romans 3, just and the justifier. He doesn't give up his justice in order to justify us. It's because his justice is satisfied in Jesus' death. It is a legal death and a legal sentence of death, thus freeing God to legally then forgive us in that way. John Flavel wrote, If Christ by dying has made full satisfaction, then God can consistently pardon the greatest of sinners that believe in Jesus. You know yourself, I know myself, and you think, why, would, why could God ever forgive me? It's only one reason, because of Jesus. You see, that is the good news of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel being good news, that is why. Nicholas II, the final czar of Russia, had the habit of disguising himself and then visiting his military outposts for the purpose of evaluating them. Uh, in one of the outposts was a young man whose father had enlisted him in the military. Some of you are thinking, that sounds familiar. Um, with the hope of putting some, some discipline, some direction into his life. However, army life served as fuel that fed the fires of the wild life that he lived. One of this young soldier's weaknesses was gambling. And it so happened that he was also the bookkeeper of that outpost. And as his gambling debts grew, he found it necessary to steal from some of the unit's funds to pay his debts. Instead of hitting it rich, however, he just continued to go deeper and deeper into debt to the outpost's treasury. One night he decided that he would add up all of the debts and see how much he owed. And when he realized the immense debt, he decided to commit suicide. He took out his gun, and then he wrote across the ledger, so great a debt, who can pay? As he was contemplating taking his life, he, he dozed off to sleep. 
Well, Tsar Nicholas happened to be inspecting that particular outpost that particular night. He was disguised as an officer of lower rank. And he noticed a light burning in the bookkeeper's shack, and so he went to investigate. And inside, he saw the man with the gun in his lap, and then the writing on the ledger, and immediately he understood the situation. And when the soldier awoke from his sleep, he put the gun to his head, and for a moment he looked down on that ledger, staring at those words, so great a debt, who can pay? And then he saw, written underneath those words, paid in full, Tsar Nicholas II. Paid in full. We're coming up on Good Friday and Easter. One of the things, when you look at the words that Jesus spoke from the cross, and right before he gave up his spirit and physically died, uh, he said this, it is finished. In the Greek language of the New Testament, it's just one word, tetelestai. The word means paid in full. A man was talking with a Christian friend about how to be saved because he was deeply convicted about his sin. And when he asked his friend what he could do to be saved, the Christian said he was too late. Too late? What do you mean? You mean I'm too late to be saved? No, the man said, you're just too late to do anything yourself. Christ has already done it all. There's nothing you can do. Now, most of us here today probably have already trusted in Christ for our salvation. And yet, do we live practically as if we're still trying to earn God's favor? Somehow still trying to convince him to forgive us? Is there still some way that we feel we need to do something to gain God's love and forgiveness? If that's the case, then we really don't understand the gospel. We don't really understand God's love. We don't really understand God's forgiveness. Because you see, Christ and Christ alone has satisfied the justice of God. If you happen to be here today and have never trusted in Christ and you recognize that you are a person who still has sin to be dealt with, there is only one, there is nothing you can do other than to believe in Jesus and to trust in him. There's no other way that you can gain salvation and forgiveness other than that, something that Jesus has already done. You know, what a paradox when you think about it. Christ had to die that we might live. And only in his death can God forgive and give us new life. And that's exactly what God has done. And so Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And there's only one way that that's possible, and that is what God did for us in Christ. Here's what Paul says in his letter to 2 Corinthians and I've inserted the, the name so we understand the he and the hymns as you're reading in your text. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is accounting language that Paul uses here. It means to impute, to put over to one side of the ledger sheet. And so what God does in Christ, he takes all of our sin that's on our side of the ledger sheet and he puts it over onto Christ. 
And then he takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts it over onto us. There's a transference here. And that's why God can look at us and declare that we have life in him. Why we're forgiven. Why we have eternal life. Only one reason is because of what God did in Christ and transfers righteousness over to us, the idea of being in the right. I think it's important to note that the emphasis in Scripture is on the death of Christ, not on his birth. Isn't that interesting? Think about all that you read in the New Testament. And we make a big deal about Christmas, and that's okay. But really, the bigger thing is the fact that Jesus was made sin, which is even a bigger thing than him being made flesh. Both point to the love of God, to the grace of God. And so in 1 John 4, 11, John comes down for a second time and he says to believers, love one another. This is the commandment that God expects us to obey. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another, he says. And so we realize that true spiritual experience involves the whole person. The mind has to understand spiritual truth. The heart must love and appreciate that truth. And the will must put the truth into action. And I think it's a true thing, and the saints of old all declare it, that the deeper we go into understanding the meaning of the cross, the greater will be our love for Christ, and greater will be our love for other people. There's a direct link there. What God is, God is love. What God did, he sent his son. There's a third thing, though, that John says, and that's what God is doing. And that is that he abides in us. Would you go back to the text of 1 John 4? Pick up at verse 12. John says, For no one has ever seen God. If we love God, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. John says that God does something in us. We're not merely students reading a book. We're not just spectators watching a deep, deeply moving event, but we are participants in a great drama of God's love. And so we read these verses and it's like the light bulb goes on and it's, oh, so this is what it's all about. And we discover what God had in mind from the very beginning of his salvation plan. To begin with, God's desire was to be living in us. He's not satisfied to tell us just that he loves us or to even show that he loves us. Now, it's interesting to trace God's dwelling places as recorded in Scripture. In Genesis, God walked with man. In Exodus, God lived with or dwelt with man. But an amazing thing happens when we come to the New Testament where now we see that God dwells within men and women and boys and girls that have trusted in Christ. So with this in mind, we can better understand what this passage is saying to us. According to Scripture, God is invisible. No one has ever seen him. And then Jesus took on human flesh, God himself, very God, and he came and showed us what the Father was like. 
But Jesus no longer lives on earth. He's no longer in this world in that same way. So how do people learn about God? How do they know God? They see God in us. How's that for a challenge for tomorrow morning on your way to work or whatever you're doing? Through his children, through those who have come to faith in Christ. And so people can't see God, but they can see us. And God's love is to be experienced in us and his love then expressed through us. And it all ties into this little word that he uses. The word is abide. Abide. Six times in the verses we just read, we have this word abide. And it all talks about our personal relationship with God. And because we're born of God, we are united with him then in Christ. But it's only as we trust him, it's only as we, as we live in obedience to him, then that we have this fellowship that is such a major part of John's writing in this letter. We have God's spirit dwelling in us. Now, look on in the text, because I want you to just to see one of the consequences of the indwelling spirit and the love of God. And so we have to pick up at verse 17. John writes, but by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John says that God's love is perfected in the believer. The word means to bring to conclusion, to accomplish, to finish. So it shows this love which God is in his nature has accomplished its purpose in our lives. And when we really understand God's love and what this love has accomplished in Christ such that he totally forgives us of all our sins, then we have confidence in our relationship with him. I'm going to talk a lot more next week as we wrap this whole study up in chapter 5 about the idea of confidence. We need to have confidence in our relationship with God. And John's sort of alluding to it here by saying if we understand God's love, we know that our sins were judged at the cross. Listen, if you know Christ, there's not one of your sins that you've ever committed or, or will ever commit to the day you die that will ever be brought up in judgment. Oh, we're going to be judged, but we're going to be judged for our works. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to be judged for the things we've done in the flesh whether motivated rightly and, and for God's glory, but never ever will your sins ever come up again. You won't stand before God and he's going to have a book there and he's going to pull it out and say, do you remember on September 7th, 2017, this is what you did. Never going to come up. Never going to come up. In fact, Jesus spoke about this very reality. Look what he writes. It's recorded in John 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. 
And the verb tense is so important. In fact, I talked about this in, in Gretchen's memorial service uh, because that's something Gretchen and I had discussed there days before her death. But it is such a wonderful truth. And so here's where the verb tense comes in. It's present tense. We have eternal life. But then he switches verb tense. Just hang with me here. He switches verb tense when he gets down and says, but is passed from death to life. And he uses in the Greek the, the perfect tense. The perfect tense is used to describe something of permanence. It's the idea of completed action in the past with results that continue on down through the present. And so it's like, you have passed. Well, when, when did that happen? It came at the moment you trusted in Christ. And God forgave you and he saved you. And the result is that you continue to live in a state of life today. Because you passed out of death back when you trusted Christ. That's the eternal consequence of the one who's experienced God's love through the salvation that's given because of Jesus. That's the confidence that we have in and through him. Think about it for a moment. If people are afraid, it's usually because there's something in the past that haunts them, maybe something in the present that upsets them, or something in the future that threatens them, maybe all three. But as a believer in Christ, the scriptures teach very clearly, you do not have to fear the past, you don't have to fear the present, you don't have to fear the future. It's all because you've experienced the love of God and the grace of God and the forgiveness that he offers through Christ. And so the secret of our boldness is what John says, as he is, so also are we. This is our confidence. And then this confidence leads us to boldly and consciously love others just as Christ has loved us. Loving others is evidence of our faith and the fact that we've experienced God's love. William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1940s, and he wrote this, Love of God is the root, love of our neighbor the fruit of the tree of life. Neither can exist without the other, but the one is cause and the other is effect. Because we are loved by God, we in return can love him. And in return, we can love others. We love because he first loved us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your love. I, I just, I don't understand it. And it seems we get such a, a little glimpse of it that our puny minds can understand and comprehend. That you loved us so much that you sent your own son God himself taking on human flesh. And not only that, but you made him sin. All of our sins were placed on him so that you would pour out your holy wrath upon your beloved son, God himself, and bear the penalty for our sins. And how that satisfies your justice and frees you to forgive those who will come and trust in you and believe in Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would overwhelm us with the sense of your love, not necessarily in an emotional way, but in the heart of hearts, God, that you would assure us of that, that you love us. And may that propel us this week then to be the people that you created us to be, that you saved us to be. May our lives truly reflect your character in how we respect others how we respond to others, 
how we speak to others, how we think of others. May your love be a part of our lives this week. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.